your Bibles in Luke chapter 9. Have you ever considered how little of your life you actually control? You don't decide which day you're going to be born. You don't choose your parents. You don't select the country of your origin. You don't choose your skin color or your eye color or your hair color. You don't get to pick your height or your appearance. You don't control the weather. You don't control the diseases you'll be diagnosed with. You don't control the accidents you'll be involved in. You have no vote in any of those things. So what do you control? Well, the Bible suggests that you control a small but very important part of your life, and that is your will. You choose where you go, when you go, why you go or don't go, what you say, what you do, how you do it. But you know, on closer inspection, you don't even control that. We like to say we have a free will. But Jesus told us that it really wasn't free. In John 8, 34, Jesus said, Everyone who commits sin, how many of you is that? Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. So Jesus says we are enslaved to sin. Sin is our master. And the simplest definition of sin is that sin is selfishness. So I really don't have a choice. I am a slave to being all about me. Now we consider that freedom. I'm free to choose what I want. But the reality is that slavery, and I can't get free from it apart from Jesus Christ. It's kind of like having a cell phone that only dials one number. It's dialed into me. I am chained to choosing me. And so it's not surprising that the thing that Jesus calls you to surrender control of is your will. Luke chapter 9 and verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. The first step in following him is denying you. It's surrendering control of you. It's saying to Jesus what he said for you in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. Now what I want to talk about tonight is why we refuse to surrender our will. Why we don't deny ourselves. And I came up with four excuses that I commonly hear. See if you can relate to these. Excuse number one. I think I know what's best for me. You ever said that? Some of you are saying it right now. I said that for years in my life and too often still say it. I think I know what's best for me. The truth is that nothing could be further from the truth than me knowing what's best for me. Let's see, you've lived 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. 
And God has lived forever. And you know what's best for you. At some point, every child will defiantly say, I know. Some of your children will say this more often than others. I know what's best for me. Does your child know what's best for him? No. A child left alone will eat Twinkies all day. A child left alone will grab scissors and run with them. A child left alone will trot out into the street. A child left alone will ultimately kill himself. You see, a child doesn't know what's best for him. He needs a parent. He needs a Lord to watch him and guide him. Now, we would all nod and say, that's right. Children do not know what's best for them. But when we arrive at a point of physical maturity, when we get out from under the authority of our parents, somehow we find ourselves taking that same defiant stand and saying, I know what's best. I'm a college student now. I know what's best. I'm an adult now. I know what's best. I'm married now. I know what's best. In fact, I would say that's the mantra of our society. I know what's best. We might as well change our national anthem to, I did it my way. How's that working out for us? We have an epidemic of depression in this country. We have an epidemic of divorce, broken families, irreparable relationships, isolation, regret, guilt. We have an epidemic of addiction, addiction to alcohol, to drugs, to TV, to sports, to video games, really an addiction to me. And yet we act shocked at the outcome. I hear people say all the time, I can't believe what I'm seeing on the news. And what are we seeing on the news? Theft, abuse, murder, suicide. Why do you have locks on your car and on your house? Why do you have a security system? Why do some of you carry a concealed weapon? Why do we have police? Because we don't know best. We need a father. We need a Lord. Because I don't know best. Second excuse why we don't deny ourselves and follow Jesus is I'm not sure that God has my best interests at heart. You ever said that? Ever thought that? I'm not sure God has my best interests at heart. I'm going to tell this on Saturday night because I don't want it recorded. But uh, a couple months ago, I got a parking ticket. Let's take that same posture with God. We think he's angry. He's vengeful. He's out to get us. And if I contact him, he'll get my file out and start looking at it. And if I were to follow him, he's probably going to lure me around a 
corner and club me and take all my stuff. Listen, if God wanted to hurt you, he could hurt you. God loves you. And one of the evidences that he loves you is that he is patient with you even when you dig in those heels and say, I know what's best. But you know, even when you understand that he loves you, it's still kind of scary to trust him. It's still kind of scary to follow him for two reasons. One is because to do so, you have to let go of your control. You have to relinquish control, and we're comfortable with control. My wife tells me I'm a control freak. I think deep, deep down we're all control freaks. We, we want to hold on to control. And so it's scary to give that up to the Lord. And I think a second reason is because you don't know exactly where he's going to take you. When you follow him, he doesn't show us the whole road. And the part of the road that we can see when we set out to follow him is not very appealing. In fact, in Luke 9, 24, Jesus says, you have to lose your life in order to find it. I don't know about you, but losing my life is not a very appealing thing. The first part of the path doesn't look very attractive. And that's always the paradox in Scripture. When we follow the Lord, we always have to go down before we go up. To get to the crown, you have to go through what? The cross. To get to glory, you have to go through suffering. To get to that place of exaltation, you first have to humble yourself. To be first, you have to be last. And all I can see when I start out is the cross and the suffering and the persecution and the humility and being last and denying myself. And it causes me to question God's intentions. Are you sure you know what you're doing? And God responds this way, I know the plans I have for you. They are plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29, 11. As I look back on my life, the only parts I regret were those times when I dug in my heels and said, not your will but mine be done. And as I look back on my life, the greatest times of joy and the greatest times of blessing were when I surrendered to him. Because that's when I proved what Romans 12, 2 says. That's when I proved that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. give you a third excuse. This is one you may be saying also. He may ask me to do something that I don't want to do. If I follow Jesus, he may ask me to do something that I don't want to do. Well, of course he will. Abraham didn't want to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. 
Moses didn't want to go before Pharaoh. Joseph didn't want to spend all those years in prison. Jonah didn't want to go and preach to Nineveh. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. Nobody likes the cross. Nobody likes to die. Nobody likes to deny himself. But that's what a disciple does. He follows Jesus. He goes wherever Jesus leads. He does whatever Jesus says. He says no to what he wants in deference to what Jesus wants. I am to say no to my thoughts and my actions and my plans and my pleasure, my prestige, my life goals, my glory in order to say yes to his thoughts his actions, his plans, his pleasure, his prestige, his goals, his glory, his fame. I'll give you a fourth excuse. This is one I hear probably most often. I'm not qualified. If I tried to follow Jesus, I could never do it. I'm not qualified. Let me tell you this up front. If you are saying that, what you consider an excuse, Jesus considers an asset. Because if you are not qualified and you know you're not qualified, you're qualified. Were the original 12 disciples qualified? Remember how Jesus selected them. He ran an ad in the Galilean Gazette, fed up with fishing? How about an exciting new career as a disciple? No, he didn't do that. If he had, it would have been interesting because he never would have called these guys for an interview because if he looked at their resume, none of them had any particular academic background. They were not the PhDs of Galilee. None of them had any particular wealth. Matthew was probably the richest of the bunch, and he got his money by extortion. None of them had any particular social status. Most of them were fishermen. They were blue-collar guys. One was a tax collector hated by the people. One was a zealot, a political revolutionary. But Jesus didn't choose them that way. Jesus spent all night praying, And then he came down and he selected 12 men. And if you look at their qualifications, it's rather interesting. I'm going to give you five of their qualifications. See if you relate to these qualities. Number one, they were spiritually clueless. They were dense. They had no spiritual antennas at all. Now, that's interesting. Picking guys that are clueless to turn the world upside down spiritually, and yet these are the guys that Jesus chose. In fact, look at Luke chapter 9 and verse 43. The last phrase in verse 43 says, He said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. Now that's a way of saying, I'm going to talk real slow, and I want you to let this soak into your ears. And here's what he says, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Pretty simple statement. 
The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. I'm talking really slow. I want this to sink into your ears. What's verse 25 or 45 say? But they did not understand this statement. They were clueless. And then the last part of verse 45 says they were afraid to ask. Why not? Because they might look like the dumbest of the dumb. They're sitting with guys that don't have a clue, but they don't want the other guys to know they don't have a clue, so they won't even ask a question to find out what they don't understand. Look over a few chapters to Luke 18. Luke 18, verse 31. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and they will, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Now that's the plan outlined in bullet points. Did they comprehend? Look at verse 34. But the disciples understood none of these things. They didn't even get a few of these things. They got none of these things. They got zero. They are clueless. Now, I had to think at this point, Jesus would be going, maybe I should go back to the mountain and pray again. Because these can't be the guys that I'm supposed to be with. Look at Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15. Matthew 15 and verse 12. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? Jesus is preaching and the disciples come and say, Uh... You need to tone it down a little bit because you're offending the Pharisees. Here's Jesus' response in verse 13. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. The reason they're offended is because they weren't planted by my Father. And then he goes on, verse 14. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into the pit. Leave them alone. They're blind guides. They don't understand spiritual truth. And then look at verse 15. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? Now, this is good. Jesus says, leave the Pharisees alone because they're spiritually blind. They just don't understand. And Peter raises his hand and says, uh, would you explain that to us because we don't get it either? And Jesus says, are you still without understanding? They were worse off than the Pharisees. The, un the Pharisees understood enough to be offended. For the disciples, this was just going right over their head. They didn't get any of it. They were clueless. Let me show you one more verse. Go earlier in Matthew to chapter 13. 
in verse 51. A whole chapter of parables in Matthew 13, and when we get to verse 51, Jesus asked the disciples, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. Did they understand all these things? No. You see, they're so dense that they don't even know that they don't know. They're clueless. Jesus told them parables, they didn't get it. He explained the parables, they didn't get it. He gave them precepts, he gave them principles. They didn't get it because they were so full of their own presuppositions and their prejudices that they didn't understand a word Jesus said. So let me ask you this. Are you clueless? Then you're qualified to be a disciple. Let me give you the second qualification. They are proud. They're arrogant. They're seeking to be first. They are clawing their way to the top. And because of that, they're jealous of each other, envious of each other. I always picture these guys walking behind Jesus and they're kind of elbowing and shoving each other and pushing and trying to get to the front. It's like when I was a kid, we'd be going somewhere and we'd say, shotgun. That meant I'm most important. I get to sit in the passenger seat. The disciples had that same attitude. Look at Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 and verse 33. And to put it into context, right before this, he told them what was going to happen to him, that he was going to be handed over to men and killed and Rise again the third day, and verse 32 says they didn't understand any of that. And then verse 33 says they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed which one of them was the greatest. If you have kids, you understand this. You come in there fighting, you go, what's going on? And they go, nothing because they don't want to tell you what they're talking about. Jesus is telling them, I'm going to humble myself and go to the cross, and as he's going along, they're behind him fighting about who's the greatest. They were full of pride. Look at Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20 and verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. Now these guys get their mother to come to Jesus and ask him for the best seats in the kingdom. That's pretty proud. In verse 22, but Jesus answered, you do not know what you were asking. Now, that doesn't surprise us. They didn't know anything they heard. How could they know what they're asking? And then he goes on, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? The cup being the cup of suffering he's going to drink on the cross. And they say, we are able. We can do that. And then Jesus said to them, my cup you shall drink. When you think about it, these two guys, James and John, James was the first martyred 
of the disciples. And John suffered and was imprisoned and put on the island of Patmos. So they did drink the cup down the road. But Jesus says, to sit on my right and my left, that's not mine to give. But it's for those for whom it's been prepared by my Father. And then notice verse 24. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. Why were they angry at James and John? Well, I think because James and John thought of it first. They had their mother come and ask for the two best seats, and they almost got bested on this. And so they were angry because they were proud. Are you proud? You're qualified. Here's a third qualification. They were skeptical. Skeptical. Over and over we hear Jesus saying, O ye of little faith. You know who he says that to most often? The twelve. In fact, in Mark 4.40, he says this, How is it that you have no faith? How much is that? Zero. They had no faith. After his resurrection, Mark 16.14 says, He rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. He shows up alive from the dead, and people tell the disciples that he's alive, just like he said, and they don't believe. Their unbelief is unbelievable. We, we call one of them Doubting Thomas. They were all doubting. Doubting Peter, doubting James, doubting Andrew, doubting John. Do you ever doubt? You're qualified to be a disciple. Fourth qualification, they were fearful. Now they talked a good game. Peter said in Matthew 26, 35, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then it says all the disciples said the same thing too. That's kind of like a locker room. Peter says, I'll never deny you. I'll die for you. And they all start saying the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bold words. Later that same night, Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. And they all fled away. Luke 5.11 says they left all and followed him. And Mark 14.50 says they all left. And fled. Are you fearful? You're qualified. One more qualification. They were weak. They were spiritually frail. They were helpless. They were impotent. In Matthew 17, Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration and he's met by a man who says, I brought my son who has a demon to your disciples because he has seizures all the time and those seizures, that demon throws him into the fire or would throw him into the fire. And I came to your disciples and they couldn't cure him. And so Jesus cures him and the disciples come to Jesus in verse 19 of Matthew 17 and they say, why couldn't we cast it out? And Jesus says, because of the littleness of your faith. And little faith equals little power. Now, I hope you're getting this. Jesus isn't looking for people who are qualified. He's looking for people who are unqualified and will admit it. 
And here's a key verse. Mark 3.14. James looked at it a few weeks ago. It says, And Jesus appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out. Jesus didn't need qualified people because he got these 12 so that they would be with him for those three years, and then he would send them out. The nature of discipleship is being with Jesus. And walking with Jesus transforms people. They were clueless, but Jesus kept teaching them. And in John 12, 16, we read this. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered. He taught them and taught them and taught them until they finally had an aha experience. They got it. They were proud. So Jesus walked with them, and they saw his humility, and he led them by example. The night before his crucifixion, what did he do in John 13? He knelt down and washed their feet in humility. He showed them what it was. They were skeptical. So Jesus just kept revealing himself and revealing himself and revealing himself to alleviate their doubts. They were fearful. So Jesus just kept praying for them. Remember what he said to Peter in Luke twenty-two thirty-one: 31, Simon, Simon, Satan will sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And when you turn again, I want you to strengthen your brothers. They were weak, so Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit shall come upon you. Was Jesus successful? Listen to this verse in Acts 4.13. As they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. Now the they there is the high priest. When the high priest observed Peter and John, uneducated and untrained men, when the qualified spiritual leaders of the day saw these guys who were unqualified, it says this, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. They weren't qualified, their resume still didn't look that good, but they were amazed by them because they had been with Jesus. And how could they tell they had been with Jesus? Because they walked like him, they talked like him, they loved like him. What are the qualifications to be a disciple? You have to be clueless, proud, skeptical, fearful, and weak. So what's your excuse? You see, the only qualification you really need to follow Jesus is a surrendered will. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me.
we're going to close our service by taking communion together. I think it's appropriate because we call it communion because it really is a time when we commune, have fellowship with Jesus Christ and with each other. And so in a sense, this is a great way of following him, to to gather on a regular basis and take the bread and take the cup and remember what Jesus did for us. And as we come tonight, I want to just challenge you to come to the Lord, admitting that, Lord, I'm clueless. I, I, I don't comprehend spiritual truth very well. And I'm proud. I tend to want to elevate myself rather than humble myself. And I'm full of doubts a lot of times, and, and I'm fearful, and I'm weak, but I'm coming to remember you because I know you are the one who can transform me in those areas and make me like you, the one who humbled himself and went to the cross and is now wearing the crown in glory in heaven. I want to follow you all the way to the cross, whatever it costs to be like you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the simple bread and cup. Lord Jesus, that you told us to take and remember you. And as we come tonight, pray that you would help us to examine our hearts, to realize it's not about us, it's about you. And to be willing to follow you, to deny ourselves because we're not qualified anyway. To lay down our life before you so that you can pick it up and give us life. And to lead us in ways that glorify you. Father, as we take the bread, take the cup, I pray that we would be truly thankful tonight that you, Lord Jesus, said, not my will, and you gave your life to pay for our failures and our sin. And we give you the glory tonight in Jesus' worthy name.